Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner 
were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I want to start with a word of prayer before we jump into this passage. I don't know about you. This morning, it's not been a bad morning, but it's been a little bit rushed for me. And sometimes you come in to church or wherever, but particularly to church, uh, with that rush of life, and it's hard to stop, take a breath, and listen to what God's Word has to say. And so I want to just take a moment and pray for the Lord to help us to do that. God, uh, there are so many things going on in our lives, so many things that have happened this week, so many things that have happened this morning that we, that we carry into this time. I imagine for Abraham, there were who knows how many things that he thought were vitally important at this moment when you came and appeared to him and spoke to him something that was vastly more critical than anything else going on in his life. And so I pray, God, this morning that we would all be able to cease concentrating on other things, as important as they seem, that are less important than your word, that are less important than what you want to speak to us through your word this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would do that work in our hearts that you promises you'll do. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm sure you've probably heard that phrase spoken before. I'm sure you've, like me, you've probably said it at some point. Problem is, it's just not quite accurate. Now, I understand that that may be a cherished phrase for many of you. My intention isn't to embarrass you or to frustrate you this morning. Many of us who have used it are well-intentioned in doing so, but I think, I think perhaps we've been unintentionally, accidentally misleading or at the very least unclear when we speak it. You know, our desire is for people to understand that Christianity, our Christian faith, is not merely religious motions devoid of meaning, devoid of a personal relationship with the God who saved us. And that's true. But what we also communicate with that phrase is that religious actions, those worshipful, even repetitious at times, acts of devotion that God calls us to, those sinful behaviors that he calls us away from, those actions that he calls us to do in obedience to him, that these are somehow insignificant and unimportant or even distracting from what we would call real faith. Is God really just wanting a relationship with me? And all of those things are sort of take it or leave it, depending on whether I deem them to be significant or not? Or does God get to decide? 
And then there's the relationship side of the phrase. Certainly, we would affirm that God, while being transcendent above and outside of and other than all of creation, is also somehow in his miraculousness, personal, imminent with us, that we can and do, through Christ, have a relationship with the God of the universe. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth. But I wonder, are we really representing to others the kind of relationship that exists with God for those who are in Christ? Or are we representing something that is less than all that we truly have? Do we even understand all that we truly have in Christ? Even if we refer to marriage as an illustration, as the Bible does, right? Even if we do that, it seems like that doesn't immediately convey the reality because our culture and even our Christian culture that we live in today has so diminished what marriage even means. I wonder if a phrase like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, doesn't unintentionally flatten the depth of what it means to be a Christ follower. Do we have a relationship with God like we have a relationship with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend? It just happens that this relationship is with the God of the universe? Or is it actually something much more thrilling and much more terrifying. You see, 13 years have passed since the end of chapter 16. I know it's only been one week for us. It's only been one verse, but it's 13 years for Abraham. 13 years since Ishmael was born to him. And for 13 years, Abraham must be thinking, ah, Ishmael the son of promise, the one whom God promised to me all those years ago when he said, go, go to the land I will show you in Genesis 12. Even though Ishmael is not the child of his, what was his only wife when that promise came, still, he's the son he has, and he has no reason to believe that Sarah will have a child. She's 89 years old. But all that's about to change. I wonder if Abraham hadn't taken the wonderful promises of God and had flattened them out a little bit to make them a little easier to believe, a little easier to understand make them something a little less wonderful than what God intended. I want you to notice in chapter 17 the structure of this chapter. Yahweh appears to Abram, and it starts with two speeches in the first paragraph. Two speeches by God divided by Abram's reaction of falling on his face. And then there is a third speech by God to Abraham where he talks about circumcision that's followed up with two more speeches by Yahweh, again divided 
by Abram falling on his face, but in a little bit different manner that we'll notice later on. Then it concludes with Abraham's response. And so with that structure in mind, here's how I'd like to lay out our sermon this morning. The first two speeches in verses four through eight, that's God initiating this covenant. And we're going we're gonna to call that God calls his people. Point one, God calls his people. And then he's going to give them this mark or reminder of that covenant in verses nine through 14. And we're going to say that's God sets apart his people. Then he's going to reveal the way in which he's going to fulfill that covenant with the one in whom he chooses in verses 15 through 21. And we'll say that's God guarantees his people. And finally, we'll see what Abraham does in response. And that's simply God's people obey. So that's where we're going this morning. The Lord's initial brief speech summarizes all that is going to be explained throughout this passage in the first few verses, in the first, well, the first two verses. Yahweh appears to Abram and he says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you. And the structure of this phrase is just like we saw back in Genesis 12, if you remember. Back in Genesis 12, 1, God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And just as in Genesis 12, in this passage, the Lord is starting with the command. Instead of go, he says, walk before me blameless. It's a command like the first command of Genesis 12, but more. But more is being revealed. And in Genesis 12, it wasn't his obedience that made him righteous or made him chosen by God. Rather, he was chosen and his faith in the promise of God, shown in his obedience to go, is counted to him as righteousness. And so here, the same is true. And why is Abram to walk before the Lord and be blameless? In Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, he's to go because God would make him a great nation and bless him and, be a, and he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, right? And here, he's to walk before the Lord because the Lord is going to make his covenant with him. The Lord is going to multiply him, multiply him greatly. And this, this is what we would call progressive revelation. That is that That God didn't just zoom by and drop a golden scroll in Abraham's lap and say, hey, here's my plan for redemption of the entire world. So lay it all out ahead of time. Rather, as we walk through scripture, we see his plan, his plan that never actually changes, but is just illuminated to us, revealed to us progressively in greater and greater ways. And so in Genesis 17, we're not looking at something that is fundamentally different than Genesis 12, but rather, there's just more details. More details about what God is doing and more details about what God requires of his people. The core of this covenant, at the core of this promise is a covenant. Now, covenant has been mentioned, the word covenant has been mentioned only once in chapter 15, if you remember, but the idea of covenant has been laced through Genesis from Genesis 2. 
But in this chapter, in Genesis 17, the word covenant occurs 13 times. It is a primary theme of what's going on here. Now, a covenant can be described as a sacred kinship bond between two partners or two parties sworn by an oath, and it includes certain duties and privileges, certain responsibilities and blessings by each party. And so when God presents this to Abram, Abram's reaction is to fall on his face, to bow low before the Lord. And then in verse 4, it starts to get specific. Look with me what it says. The Lord says that the covenant is with Abram, and he will be father of a multitude of nations. Then he changes his name. He changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which literally means father of a multitude. He says, you will be this, and I am changing your name. I am changing your identity. I'm changing how you are defined based on my call on you, based on what I am going to do, my promises. Why? Why does he change his name? Because he will be, says right there, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And twice that's repeated. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. Abraham, who is hardly a father, I mean, he's a father to Ishmael, but, but not a father to the child through whom these promises are to come yet. And yet here, God promises that he'll be the father of a multitude. Um, not just a multitude of people, but a multitude of nations. And God isn't saying God isn't saying, oh, I see, I see that this is going to happen. I see, Abraham, Abraham, that you're so great that you're going to do this, and so I'm going to call you. Rather, what God is saying is this happens because I'm calling you. And he makes some promises to Abraham. Notice the, the unending, unbreakable language of this part of his speech. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant. I will give to you and to your offspring the land, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. I will be their God, he says. And here's the point. God calls his people. God calls his people. That's what he does. It's what he's been doing. It's what he continues to do. When God does this, he reveals that he defines who they are. Everything else is secondary to that. Now listen, if I'm an Israelite reading this, walking through the wilderness to the promised land, and I'm thinking, gosh, is this going to work? Are we going to be able to just march into the promised land and take it like God is saying? We just left Egypt and we're just marching along here in the wilderness. And then I read this and I think to myself, I'm an Israelite. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a child of promise. Of course I can because this is who God says I am. Because God promises it. So what about us? See, here we are told that Abraham will be the father of what? 
a multitude of nations. Not just one. Not just those who are ethnically Jewish. But a multitude of nations. Right in his name. In Genesis 17, the name that God gave him, God promises what he will do through Christ in the future. That through Christ, the offspring of Abraham, he will bring many nations to himself. This is what we've been seeing since Genesis 12. That this covenant that is promised to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, we are told that we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. God has called us out of darkness and into the light. Our adoption into God's family is foundational for who we are. It defines us more than anything else. God has promised things to his children. So we move to this second section What's technically God's third speech here in verses 9 through 14. And God gives Abraham a sign of this covenant that he's making. And the sign is circumcision. Circumcision isn't meant to make someone part of the people of God, but to be a sign or a mark that someone is part of God's people. What then is circumcision all about? Well, kids, if you're not sure... Talk to your parents after service. Just leave that at that. For everyone else, I will continue. The promise, the promise here is of offspring, right? You might think to yourself, why circumcision of all things? Like, isn't there something similar? Can't we have like a, I don't know, like a a ring we wear or like a, a, I don't know, Tattoo, maybe? I don't know. Uh, um, Something. Something. Anything. Give me anything other than this, right? Why this? The promises of offspring, right? Ultimately, it goes back to Genesis 3, verse 15, where there is a child, a seed of promise. Without getting too far into the human anatomy piece, for Abraham and for his male descendants, there's one key piece of anatomy from which the seed, if you will, practically, physically will come, right? And that's represented in circumcision. Okay, but, but why the cutting off part? I mean, that seems kind of extreme. Well... It's really in the definition of the word. See, he's setting apart a people for himself. That's what God is doing by having them circumcised. He says, I'm setting you apart. In other words, I'm cutting you off from the rest of the world as a people special to me. The fact that they are circumcised is a physical representation of their being distinguished from other people that are not God's people. So it separates them in a way. It makes them unique. And it's all, maybe it seems strange. Does this physical religious act 
really matter that much? Well, Romans 2 elaborates a little bit. Let me read Romans 2, 25 through 29 to you. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, what circumcision points to is holiness. What circumcision points to is what God originally said in this passage to Abraham, right? You will walk before me and be blameless. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Ah, so there's deeper meaning behind it. For no one is Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of a heart by the Spirit. You see, we could, we could walk through a bunch of different passages. We don't have time to do it, but all throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, it says over and over again, what God requires of you is not merely the physical circumcision. What He requires of you, people of God, is circumcision of your heart. That you would be set apart and love the Lord. And truly be his people. Circumcision of the heart, not only the flesh. The physical act of circumcision was meant to remind them of the covenant with God. The covenant that is to define who they are. Who they were meant to be. Who they were meant for. Meaning that their hearts would be for God. And that it would be seen in their obedience. That their circumcised hearts would result in lives that are circumcised, cut off from the things of the world that are sinful, committed to their Lord. And so, on its own, it doesn't produce something spiritual. Rather, the spiritual is represented in the physical act. And so here's the point. Here's the point. God sets apart his people. Well, what's that mean for us? Well, what was, what moved then from physical to spiritual in the covenant with Israel flips and starts with the spiritual and moves to the physical in Christ. Meaning when Christ, because of faith in our faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts, right? When he does a work, and we come to faith in Christ, we will become more holy. It will move from that circumcision of the heart, or from the heart, out into the physical. And it will mark us as different from the world. Circumcision reflects the reality that in Christ we are set apart as well. Our hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Holy meaning literally set apart. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there in one passage, we see that it's not religion rightly defined that is a problem. In fact, we are to be religious. There is a religion, pure and undefiled, before God. And it relates to our keeping ourselves unstained, set apart, cut off from 
in that sense, the world. Christians are not just set apart by Christ's work in the gospel merely to be saved. I don't know if you realize that. You're not saved merely to be saved. Rather, we are saved to be set apart and sanctified by Christ. To walk before the Lord blamelessly. Christian, that is what you are to do. And friends, we forget that. Even as I'm preparing this sermon this week and getting ready to preach it, I realize areas in my life where I'm not, I'm not taking that seriously. Or I'm excusing things. It's okay to take on a little of the world here. It's not that big of a deal. God, God won't, I mean, I won't care that much. I'm still a pretty good Christian. Being holy or moral doesn't make you a Christian, it is, but it is a mark of being a Christian. And listen, if you are a Christ follower, people should see it. They should see it in the way you live. They should see it in the way your life is being changed by Christ. We're not perfect right from the start. We're not perfect ever. But there should be a distinct movement. There should be a distinct movement. It should be able to be seen. The spiritual should become physical. Despite what you see with churches who are trying to make themselves look less like a church and more like something from the world, despite Christians, even Christian leaders, being concerned so much with fitting in with the world of our times, we ought to look different and it should be obvious. We ought to look different where God calls there to be differences. And that's hard. But I want you to notice something. And here's, where, here's the tough truth of this passage. I want you to notice something in verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not, un, who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, we would skip over that thinking, well, this doesn't pertain to me. Uncircumcised males, cut off from whatever, whatever. That's an interesting note. But listen, listen, you need to pay attention to this verse. For those whose hearts are not circumcised to the Lord and who refuse to obey him, they will be cut off as well. But they will not be cut off to the Lord. They will be cut off from the Lord. They will not be cut off for God. They will be cut off from God. And we should pay heed to those words. So God sets apart his people. But it continues. You know, all that may make you think, man, I better get my act together. Right? Sometimes I think that. Man, I get, I'm, someday I'm going to get my act together. I better get it together so that I can make sure that this covenant is guaranteed. But not only does God give Abraham all of those I will promises before he talks about what's required of him, but he repeats them and doubles down on them after. And this is such a sweet truth. Look at this. 
God comes back and he doubles down on his promises and he specifies that the offspring, the offspring of promise will come through a son born from Sarah. He changes her name as well. And again, we see Abraham, Abraham fall on his face, right? But this time, what does he do? He laughs. He laughs at the idea. How could this happen when we're both so old? Certainly, God, I believe your promises, but certainly this is impossible that it could happen this way. Abraham says what he must have assumed when God was giving the promises earlier was what God meant. He says what makes, in human terms, total practical sense, right? Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God, thank you for your promises. I have the son. Here he is. Thank you. Thank you. Bless Ishmael. God says, you're not hearing me. You're going to have a son through Sarah. And his name is going to be Isaac. Ironically, the name Isaac means he laughs. God has a sense of humor, right? You see, Abram had received these promises all the way back in Genesis 12. And I wonder if he thought, well, maybe, maybe it's going to be Lot originally. And then Lot ended up moving away. And then he wondered, well, maybe it's going to be Eleazar of Damascus. And then Ishmael was born, right? And then he thought, well, it's, ah, finally I've had a son. It must be Ishmael. And God comes and he says, no, you're not getting it. Got a very specific promise here. Abraham says, well, God, this makes a lot more sense. Let Ishmael be the child of promise. But that wasn't God's plan. And God brings about his plan in his way. And it depends on him, not me, and not you. So in verse 19, he clarifies that it's Isaac. And clearly, like I said, a play on words for Abraham's response, but also the sheer ridiculousness that he and Sarah would have a child at their age, right? And we'll see later on that when Sarah first hears about it, she also laughs. And God promises to take care of Ishmael, but, but it's through Isaac that this everlasting covenant will come. Ishmael is the product of human planning. Isaac is the product of a divine miracle. Christian, you are brought into covenant relationship with God by way of a divine miracle. It is the only way that you can be brought into covenant relationship with God. You cannot plan, you cannot work your way into that relationship only by divine miracle for those whom God calls. Listen, that's a wonderful truth. Because if it's God who does it, then it's God who guarantees it. Let me tell you this, God guarantees things a lot better than I guarantee them. Now maybe you kind of feel bad for Ishmael a little bit because he's taken a back seat here. But, but in reality, I want you to understand that he also is getting much more than he ever deserved. I want you to see that. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, there's a commercial on TV right now. It's an AT&T commercial. And two kids are standing there, there's a family there, and they're going to get their 
wireless plan or whatever, and there's two kids, and the, the AT&T lady hands one, like this little lollipop, like this little sucker, you know, like those little dum-dums, you know, if you've ever handed a dum-dum out at Halloween, like shame on you, uh, we'll have some time of repentance later, it's okay. And, um, and then to the other kid, she hands this massive lollipop. You've seen this commercial. Now, I love this because I was watching this commercial with Zachary Panjada. And I was over at the Panjadas, and we were watching TV, and, and this commercial came on. And I was about to say something. I was about to apply Cody's commentary to the commercial. But before I could, Zachary chimed in. And this is, this is fantastic. He says, you know, you know, that kid who got the smaller lollipop, doesn't really have any reason to complain because that kid didn't deserve a lollipop either. Doesn't matter that his, his sucker is smaller. He didn't deserve any lollipop. It was a gift. And I was like, yes, you are being trained well, child. That is 100% correct. 100%. There's nothing unfair about it. The kid says, oh, that's unfair. And the, 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 the ATT lady says, that is unfair, isn't it? It's like, no, that's not unfair. You didn't have a lollipop when you walked in. You did nothing for it. They gave you one. That's, it's unfair that you got one in the first place. Doesn't matter how big it is compared to the other person. All right. Listen, here's the point. God gets to decide. God gets to decide. He decides what blessing and how he gives that blessing to each person. And you don't get to look at the person next to you and say, it's not fair, that person's lollipop's different than mine. You didn't deserve a lollipop. You came with nothing. Christian, God has given you everything. You don't get to compare lollipops. You get to say thank you. That's what we get to do. It should make us fall on our face before the Lord for what he has done for us. Listen, because it's Isaac, it's a miracle. Because it's a miracle, it depends on God. Because it depends on God, it's not a wage, it's a gift. Because it's a gift, it's grace. Because it's grace, it's guaranteed. Here's the point. God guarantees his people. When he does it, for who he wants, in the ways he wants to do it, it's guaranteed. Ultimately, he brings about his people through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And that made no sense to his disciples. None whatsoever. They were, they were all offering up Ishmael's like, God, we could do it like this, Jesus. We could do it like this, Jesus. She's like, no, I'm going to the cross. No, you don't understand. I got to die. That's how it's going to happen. That's how we do this. There were so many more ways that seemed practical to the disciples. But praise God that God's wisdom makes the world's wisdom look like foolishness. How much sweeter was it for Abraham to see God promise Isaac and then a year later hold his son? Still today, friends, as, as, even as Christ followers, we try to present our own Ishmaels to God, don't we? Look, God, I did this. Doesn't it count? I've done all these religious things. I've avoided all these bad things. 
I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Won't you bless my efforts? And we wouldn't say we're trying to earn our own salvation. But when it comes down to it, we're presenting our works as decisive elements through which God will bring his covenant blessings when they're not. We're slow to accept how God says he works in bringing about his people, that we truly do have faith, but that it really does come down to him choosing us before the foundation of the world. And in so doing, when we don't trust in that, we undercut the assurance that he gives us that he guarantees it. We try. We would never say that we're responsible for getting someone else saved, for trying to get someone else to, to salvation, right? But yet, we're quick to try our own ways of getting people to be Christians rather than just trying to bring about God's kingdom, rather than just being obedient to being a witness to the gospel as we're commanded and obeying God as we're commanded. And so we carry a weight of responsibility that isn't ours that people might actually come to faith in God while ignoring the responsibility that is ours to bear witness and proclaim the gospel. And so we've seen that God calls his people and God sets his people apart and God guarantees his people. But finally, we have this last short section, God's people obey. When God has finished promising all these things and commanding all these things, and he, then he says that he, he goes up from Abram. He goes up from Abraham. He leaves. And immediately, what does Abraham do? It says, that very day, he gathers up all the men, himself, 99 years old included, and he circumcises all of them. That very day, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. God said it, you do it. How often in our own lives do we come to God's word? Do we come to something that he calls us to do? And we say, okay, God, make your suggestions for what you, you say I ought to do. And then I'll decide whether I think that's a good plan or not. Rather than coming to the word saying, yes, God, whatever you're about to say to me, the answer is yes, I will do it this very day. Now, you might think, you might say to me, well, Cody, come on. If God came and spoke to me and specifically said what he wanted me to do and sandwiched those commands around a bunch of promises that he's going to make for me, right, then it would be so easy to obey. Friends, what has God done? What has God done but put all of that in a book, condescend himself into human words so that we can understand, put it all right here. You've got 12 of these on your shelf at home. You got one on your nightstand that's got a layer of dust on it, right? It'd be so easy if we were Abraham. It'd be so easy if, you know what would make it so easy is if God actually sent his spirit to live inside of someone. That, that should make it probably easier. Listen, I, 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 I'm a little sarcastic here. I don't mean to be rude or mean, 
I only mean to say that our excuses just don't hold much weight. And listen, friends, I make those excuses too. Jesus literally came to earth. God's Spirit sent His Spirit to live inside of us as Christ followers. He condescended Himself to, re- to reveal Himself in His Word that we could read it. His Word is sufficient to explain everything that we need for faith and life in Jesus Christ. It has all the answers to all the questions. It tells us the truth of who we are because of God's promises to us through Christ. It tells us what we ought to do and what's required of us. The problem is... problem is that oftentimes we fail to take it seriously. We believe what the world is giving us instead of believing God's word. Guys, here's the bottom line. God's covenant promises everything to us. God's covenant promises everything to us, and it demands everything from us. It promises everything to us. And it demands everything from us. What we see is that Christianity is, in fact, a relationship with God. But it's so much more than a typical relationship. It's a covenant. And it is, indeed, religious. There are things we do and we do not do because we are in covenant relationship. Because even if we don't understand them, it's what God has commanded. And he is the one in which has made all the promises for us. And so I'll end with this. I think every human, every human, whether they realize it or not, whether they think about it in these terms or not, they yearn for an answer to three questions. Three fundamental, basic questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? Why am I here? Who am I? Where do I belong? Why am I here? And answering these three questions, it drives us in our search for a fulfilling life. It drives us for two, how we define who we are, who we're going to be among, and what we're going to do. Quite sure, if your heart is beating, then one or all of those questions resonates with you. And I ask you, why? Why do they resonate with you? Let me tell you why. Because God put them there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, God placed Adam in the garden. He gave him a job to do there, to to have dominion and care for it. And he made Adam in his own image, and he walked with Adam, and he put Adam in fellowship not only with himself, but with Eve. Who was Adam? Man created in God's image, walking in fellowship with God. Where did he belong? In the garden with the helper that God gave him. Why was he there to tend the garden and have dominion over it under the big king, God? But Adam sinned and he tried, he tried to be the big king in himself. And he determined his own purpose. And he decided, no, here's my Ishmael. I'll do it my way. And the relationship was broken. The covenant was broken. And he was kicked out of the garden. And everything 
continued in a mess all the way up until Genesis 12 when God appears to Abram. Something new starts. And God promises Abram that he will make his name great, identity, he'll make him a people, community, and he'll give him a place to exercise God's kingdom rule, purpose. Here in chapter 17, that story of redemption, the redemption of mankind, it takes a big step forward, but ultimately it's just another point on the plot until it arrives at the true offspring, Jesus Christ. And when God covenants with those he calls by his grace to faith in Jesus Christ, he defines us, the old is gone, the new has come, we are in Christ now Adopted as sons, it it connects us. You belong because you are not your own. You belong because you're not your own. You belong to Christ. So you can't say you don't belong because you already belong to Christ. He says you belong. You're in fellowship with God and thus you're in fellowship with his people. people, And he moves us. He gives us a new purpose in Christ to glorify God through obedience and bearing witness to who he is. Friends, God's covenant demands everything from us because it promises everything to us. Let's pray. Lord,